Welcome to the season of Advent. Many people say the term, but they don't know what it means. So I'll tell you what it means. Advent is from an ancient Greek word, and it means to arrive, to come. What a picture of hope that Christ is for us at this season. As for a believer, this is the reason why this is perhaps his favorite season. It's because it's speaking of the incarnation when God became man. So appreciate the Kinglesmiths this morning too. Appreciate you sharing that good news of Jesus Christ in an area that's really difficult. So praise the Lord. I'm, I'm excited to see the Lord moving there as he does everywhere. But in particular, I've often heard in the Middle East, the Lord is doing some pretty stupendous things. And so we're thankful for that. Thank you, brother, and your bride. Well, we are in John today. It was propitious for us to begin John as we go straight into the Christmas season. I'd like to give you just a little bit of introduction and then go just in the first five verses. Uh, we won't tell you everything about John today. Uh, we're just kind of going to do about 20,000 feet up and give you just some of the parameters of what we're studying in this book, in this gospel, and then we'll look a little bit into the text. Uh, John, uh, as the John is the author, is the brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee, also called Jesus, nicknamed the sons of thunder. We'll talk about that later. What's interesting, though, is that none of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, sign off with their name. And you go, well, why do we call it that? Well, because there are certain evidences throughout the book that reveals who the author is, even though the author ultimately is the Spirit of God through the pen of man. Uh, these internal evidences, what we see with John, is we hear this phrase over and over again called the disciple whom Jesus loved. What does that mean? We have to come back for that. We're not going to cover that right now. But uh, suffice it to say, we see that the disciple whom Jesus loved is sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. And we see that this author keeps going back to him. And so this must be the guy who wrote it. The other guy sitting with the Lord at the Lord's Supper was Judas. And we don't think there's a gospel of Judas out there, at least not a true gospel of Judas, because he left the Lord. He abandoned him and traded. He was a traitor. Well, there's also external evidence that John was the one who wrote the book. Irenaeus, who is the Bishop of Lyon, wrote that he had heard Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. And Polycarp said that John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also leaned upon his or Christ's breast, had himself published a gospel during his residence in Ephesus in Asia. So we see some external evidence as well. How about the place of writing and the original recipients? Eusebius, who was a church historian from the fourth century, he wrote that John ministered in the Ephesian church. We know by church history that John was living in Ephesus. He was pastoring there along with uh, an older woman who was living in his house. Do you know her name? Mary. Remember when Jesus at the cross, behold your son, behold your mother. From that day onwards, uh, Mary lived with John uh, as John took care of her. And John was the only of Jesus. Um, rather, Jesus had no brothers at the time that actually were trusting in him for his salvation. So hands off John, or rather his mother to John. We also see the island of Patmos is close by Ephesus, and we know that John received his revelation 
on the island of Patmos, so it makes good sense. He's writing from Ephesus. John explains Jewish customs, translated Jewish names, and located different sites among the Jews, thus giving evidence he's writing not to Jews, but to Gentiles. The date it was written, well, that's debated, but the majority evidence seems to be between A.D. 85 and 95 A.D. According to church tradition, John died a very old man and was an older man when he was writing John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And one of the reasons why we think it's much later than the other gospels that were written was that 93% of the material about Jesus is found only in this gospel. For you um, people that like to study this sort of thing, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called the synoptic gospel. Synoptic gospels mean they're seen together. So when you read those different texts, you go, oh, this is happening here in Matthew. This happens here in Mark and Luke. And and you see that common theme or common pictures. John's 93% of it is different than the other three. John is telling us information that is not found in the others. Um, Some characteristics about the book. John presents Jesus as fully God. And you might say, don't the others? Well, yes, they do. But John really makes a big emphasis of Jesus' deity. Uh, Jesus says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, will say, through the man Christ, you come to see the God Christ. Not that they're two separate people, but the point of it is, as you read about Jesus' humanity, you're reading actually about not just Jesus' humanity, but his deity as well. Two became one. Uh, believe, uh, that Greek word pisteo occurs 98 times. So obviously the spirit wants us to know something here. It's used as a verb. The noun faith does not occur once. You might hear people as you speak to them about Christianity, they'll say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a man of faith. Um, I have faith. But the strange thing about it is the Bible doesn't actually use that term often as a noun, not in the book of John. The point of it is it's active. Your believing in Jesus is not something you just put up on a shelf and you said, I was christened at this time. I went through catechism here. No, belief is active. You're doing it today in the present tense. You're trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior. Thirdly, there's many omissions in John. John leaves out a whole lot of things found in the other's uh, uh, gospels. Jesus' genealogy, birth, baptism, temptation, expelling demons, parables, transfiguration, Last Supper, Gethsemane, and his ascension are all not found in John. Instead, John's going to bring our sights to an area that most of us don't study when you study Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is he's going to focus on Jewish, uh, Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. Perhaps many of us think that Jesus spent all of his time in Galilee. That's not true. He spent large portions in Jerusalem. He'll, st- he'll speak much of Jewish feasts and then Christ's private conversations. And then his preparation of his disciples as he's about to leave the earth. John selects seven signs, uh, which are miracles that demonstrate Jesus' deity We won't speak about that today, but there's seven in particular that he is choosing on purpose to prove that Jesus is God. And then finally, 
many commentators, I think they're right, John is fighting docetism. And you go, oh, that sounds bad. And it is. Uh, docetism, it comes from the Greek word dokeo, and it means to seem. What it is, is they believe that Jesus seemed to be walking the earth as a man, but he was really a phantom. And you go, how strange. Because most times people are questioning Jesus as being God in our society. But some of the earliest heresies of the church, oh, Jesus is God. He's just not man. He can't be man. Of course not, because flesh is bad. And so he couldn't have been that. But mark it, ladies and gentlemen, if you deny Jesus' deity or you deny his humanity in their fullness, you have denied Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord today. You have to be right about this one. So I'm glad you're here today. Uh, why was this gospel written? Weren't Matthew, Mark, and Luke enough? I mean, didn't that a full enough picture? Answer is no. Who says? Uh, the Holy Spirit. So he wanted us to have John as well. Matthew, it describes Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. That's, that's Matthew's focus. And he shows you a genealogy all the way back to Abraham. Um, in Mark, it shows Jesus as the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, and he'll talk about John the Baptist right off the bat. In Luke, it shows Jesus as the son of man, which goes back to recorded predictions of Christ's birth way back to Adam. And then finally, you have John who shows a picture of the son of God. And it goes back to before the beginning. And we'll see that today. Purpose of the book, John doesn't tell you at the beginning. He tells you at the end. John 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, here it is, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's our purpose. Short outline for today, as we look at Jesus being the revealer of God, he's the one who reveals what God truly is like in its fullest picture is Jesus. We'll see that Jesus is, verse 1, eternal. Secondly, Jesus is distinct from God the Father, but he is one with God the Father. Verse 1 and 2, we'll see that he is very God. And you say, that sounds strange. Well, it's a term that they use to describe that Jesus is very God. That means 100%. He's equal to God the Father, equal to God the Spirit. Verse 3, we'll see that Jesus is the creator of all things. And finally, verse 4 and 5, Jesus is the source of all life and light. Savvy, y'all ready to go? All right, here we go. Verse 1, the Son of God is eternal. We'll see, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of the commentators writes, here we enter a realm which transcends the finite mind and where speculation is profane. In the beginning is something we are unable to comprehend. It is one of those matchless sweeps of inspiration which rises above the level of human thought. Uh, John 17, Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, Now, O Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world created. And if some of you are listening to that and going, that makes sense, then I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. 
Some of this we just have to trust is true. As Augustine would say, he says, I believe in order that I may understand. The problem with unbelievers, and sadly the problem with some believers, is they say, I have to understand first before I believe. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not Christianity. Christianity is we are trusting a book. Actually, we're believing in a God that we have never seen. And yet when we look at all the evidence, certainly we see his actions, his movements, but we trust him. And therefore, I'm trying to tell you that faith is a gift of God. You didn't come up with it on your own. This was a gift God gave you. And so we believe in order that we may understand. We're going to trust him. Uh, By the way, Clayton Thompson did a good job on that this morning as he uh, taught the youth uh, discipleship class. He and Stephen doing a great job. If you don't have your youth kids in that class, come on now. You need to. Uh, They're going to get a great education in Scripture. All right, continuing on. John uses an illusion. Perhaps you saw it from the very first words. In the beginning, you think that sounds similar. It does. It comes straight out of Genesis. That's where John is taking you. And he's showing you that Genesis is the beginning of the physical creation where God said, let there be light. And what is he doing in the book of John? Same thing. Let there be light. And he's not showing you physical creation. He's showing you his own dear son, the son of God come to the earth, giving us the hope that we have today. So he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And so so many perhaps might just kind of close your Bible. I don't know what the word word means. That doesn't make any sense. That is like philosophy 101. I don't get it. Stay with me here. The word is, it's the Greek word logos. We call our class down there logos, or some people call it logos class. We're in Texas. We can call it whatever we want, but it means the word. Um, And it happened before the beginning. The word was there. Well, why use the title, the word? Why not just say in the beginning was the son of God? Why say the word? Well, I'll give you three reasons why. Number one, for the Greeks, Greek philosophers saw the logos, uh, the word, as the power that puts sense into the world, making the world orderly instead of chaotic. You see, for them, the ultimate reason is this term word, logos, and it controls all things. I don't fully understand that myself, but the Greek philosophers knew exactly when they would read this, they would go, oh, okay. This one is actually the word that controls the universe. Not just the term, but actually the person of Jesus Christ. The Jews actually would use the word in in a very similar way. Rabbis often referred to God in terms of his word. They spoke of God himself as the word of God. David Guzik, one of the commentators, writes on this. And he writes, for example, ancient Hebrew editions of the Old Testament change Exodus 19.17, which is Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they change it to Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. Why would they change that? Well, Exodus 20 goes straight into the Ten Commandments, but that's not how you say it in the Hebrew. We have in Exodus 20, we have the story of the 10 words. That's the term. Well, why don't we call them words? Because that doesn't make any sense to Americans. 
And so it's translated as commandments and certainly can be translated. It's within the, the purview of Hebrew to translate it that way. And so what we have here is the Jews sometimes refer to God as the word. And how about John? How is John by inspiration of the spirit using it? Well, I believe the way he's using it is it's the expression of God. I mean, when you write something down or you say something, you might get in an argument with somebody and they said, you said this. And you might go, well, that's, that's not what I meant. Well, you wrote the same thing. That, I didn't mean that either. Why does that not fly in most arguments? Because we know inherently what we write or what we say comes from the mind. And we know that inherently. And so here we have this picture as the expression of God's mind, the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed God to the world, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the commentators also notes, it is deity expressing itself in audible terms. How does God reveal himself to us? I mean, think about it like this. If you and I were to go to God in our fallen self right now, it would be like taking a, a ship to the sun. We would be excoriated. We would be blown to bits. We can't, we can't stand before the holiness of God. And you might say, well, yes, I can at the point of death. Well, yes, and your flesh is not going with you. But one day God is actually going to redeem the flesh as well. But so how does God get word out to people? Well, he sends it through his word and he sends it through other aspects and we'll see that. But ultimately he sends it best through his own dear son, Jesus Christ, the son of God that reveals what God is like personally. Uh, Hebrews 1 and 2 says it like this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, number two, we'll see the second aspect about the Son of God. The Son of God is distinct from God the Father, but one with him. It says, in the beginning was the Word, he's eternal, and the Word was with God. That gr Greek term for with, it's the Greek term pros, and it means not just he's like, sitting next to God in proximity, but he rather has intimate personal relationship with God. Some of you may have heard a really bad gospel rendition. And I know I did before in the past too, where people say, you know, God was lonely and he needed man to, to somehow make him happy. I've actually read this. If you ever have a gospel track like that, rip it up. That's as far away from describing an accurate view of God. No, actually God was not lonely. How do we know that? Well, because um, there are three persons of the Godhead and they enjoyed eternity together. They didn't need man to make them happy or fulfilled in any way. Remember, man is, mankind is there to glorify God, to be mirrors of God's glory, not in any way to fulfill his needs. And yet we see that man is, or rather God is plural, yet also one. Do we have remnants of this in Genesis? Glad you asked. Genesis 1.26, God says, let me, 
Let us make man in our own image. So I think we have pictures of plurality there. Some people think that God is speaking to the angels and saying, let us. I don't see there's any indications of that whatsoever. God is there, three persons of the Trinity, and there he is there saying, let us make a man in our own image. So uh, continuing on, we see that Jesus, the son of God is co-equal. He's co-eternal with the father and the spirit. He is united, not divided. They are the same essence or the Godhead is the same essence, but not the same person. And once again, if you fully understand this, I have not explained it accurately because these are certain things we just have to accept by faith that are true. And so it's important really that we should speak rightly about the things of God, what he is and what he is not. Let's not be confusing. Even though the Bible doesn't, doesn't always make perfect sense to us, it is sensible. We are the problem, not the Bible. So if you ever said something like this, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for me. The Father that did not die for you on the cross, just to be clear. And some people would say, yes, but it's the Trinity. It's the same. No, it's not the same. It's actually not. It is the same essence. But the Son of God died for you on the cross, not the Spirit, not the Father. Why are you being so like rigid? Because the Bible uses this language. We need to go with what the Bible says. Uh, perhaps we've said this one, Jesus, thank you for writing the scriptures. Jesus didn't write the scriptures. According to 2 Peter 1.21, the spirit wrote the scriptures and he had men, and it's in the Greek, it's the idea is that he sailed, perhaps that he sailed men along as he spoke to them, inspired them to write the exact words that they should write. The spirit wrote the scriptures. How about this one? Thank you, Jesus, for choosing me before the foundation of the world. I'm not trying to break your heart here, but Jesus didn't choose you before the foundation of the world. That's what the Father did. Ephesians 1.4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the creation of the world. That was the Father's prerogative. The Father chose, the Son died for, and the Spirit drew them in one at a time. And at this point, some of you say, Jeff, it sounds like you're talking about three people. Well, the Bible, does, the theologians use this term, three persons, one essence. So what you have, how can three persons be one God, which is plurality and unity? Another question perhaps would flip that. How can one God be three persons, which is unity and plurality? Answer, I don't know. And I would beg you not to come up with some really cheesy analogy from creation to try to prove the creator. It's nothing like creation, actually. Deuteronomy 6.4, though, gives us a picture of this in some ways, or at least hints of this, the Jews' favorite verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Would it surprise you if I told you that in the Hebrew text, it is one, but it's composite one? It's not singular one. No, it's composite one. Interesting. The Hebrews, ancient, ancient Hebrews would know that. What do you do with that? Well, I, I think you make it clear the Lord is one, and yet it's a composite. It's, it's the picture of three persons. 
They didn't know that actually there were three persons, but they wouldn't know that the Godhead is, is not just singular, it's, it's, it's composite. Continuing on, it says, and the word was God. Here we see the third aspect of Jesus. The son of God is very God. He's equal to God, the father and God, the spirit. So when, when we are studying the words and actions of Jesus and John, you need to note that you're reading the words and actions of God himself. In John 10, 30, Jesus it gets stoned or tries, or rather the people want to stone him for this. In John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. They knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they wanted to kill him because they thought he was committing blasphemy, but he wasn't. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. What does that tell you? He's always been there. Can I tell you one of the greatest controversies of the ancient church? It's the nature of the Son of God. The question they asked is that, is he eternal? Why would they ask that? Because he's called the Son of God. So they're asking the question. You had a guy named Arius who was an elder in Alexandria, uh, Alexandria, Egypt. He refused to believe in Jesus' eternality. And instead, he stated, there was a time when he was not. And some would say, well, I've kind of always believed that. Well, that's called heresy, and that is false teaching. And so here's your opportunity to change your view today. You see, what's so bad about that is that he would say, he would go on further and said, Jesus must be the first creation of God. But the church had always held to, though, that Jesus is eternally begotten. He's been with the Father since the very beginning. In AD 325, the Council of Nicaea, these, all the church uh, elders from all the different parts of the empire got together and declared this doctrine as heretical, false teaching, bad stuff. This will condemn you if you have a wrong view of Christ. But what's so sad about this, the Arian teaching kept growing and growing in different parts of the empire, kept gaining traction. Finally, the Council of Constantinople in 381 reaffirmed Nicaea. Now, keep in mind, they didn't, they didn't somehow decide what the Bible was saying. What they were saying is, no, the Bible clearly says this. Jesus has been with the Lord since the beginning, and so we have to believe that since before the beginning. And some of you say, I've never heard of Arian teaching. Oh, yes, you have. Have you never spoken to Jehovah's Witnesses? They're Arians. They're Arians, that Jesus is not... Uh, that really there's only one God, and we would agree with that, but their definition of the one God doesn't include Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is the first creation of God. But what does Jesus say about this? Luke 10, 16, he who rejects me rejects the Father. That's why we would, in love, give the gospel to Jehovah's Witnesses, but in no way are they of like brethren. They are not brethren. They've denied the Son. You can't deny the Son and think somehow that you have the Father as well. No, not at all. Continuing on, uh, we see Nicaea use this phrase, he is begotten, not made. That's biblical language. Micah 5.2 gives us pictures of this, does it not, when it's referring to the prophecy about Jesus. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. He goes forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
So the son has the same essential nature as the father. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. So the fourth thing that we find out about the son of God is the son of God is the creator of all things. All of the Genesis creation is made through the agency of the son of God specifically. Now, don't lose this here. I'm not saying the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity did not have a, um, um, uh, they had a part to play in uh, the making of man and creation and everything else, but who was the agent of creation? Who is the one chosen of the three persons? It was the Son. All things were made through him. And you would say, what about Satan? And we would say, yes, Satan was made through him as well. We're going to tackle that another day, but we will tackle that. And I'm not saying the answer will be just right. We have to trust the Lord that he knows all things, and he will even allow sin, as we'll see, as part of his plan. But what about man? What can we create? Uh, perhaps you, you like to create certain things, I don't know, Christmas time, Christmas decorations. But the fact is, let me just be blunt, none of us in here have ever created anything. Uh, meaning the sense of create uh, out of nothing. Uh, what we do is we put things together. We pull all these things together, but actually none of us create anything. A.W. Pink puts it this way, man with all his boasting is unable to bring into existence a single blade of grass. We're just using what God has already created. And without him, it says in verse three, was not anything made that was made. And then at this point, some of you are saying, what about sin? What about sin? I mean, the church fathers, the guys were kind of the old grandsons, sons, great-grandsons of the apostles, they wondered about this, arguing if nothing was made without Christ, from where did sin come from? I mean, we know that sin was not among the things originally created at the beginning. Well, let me just put this very clearly and succinctly. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He is not the author of sin. And yet I would go further and say this, sin is not really a thing. Sin is, according to 1 John, lawlessness. It's the absence of law, God's law. It's, it's a twisting the twisting of a good thing. God in his grace um, gave us uh, brazos, arms. Thank you. Throwing throwing a little Spanish in here just to keep some of y'all interested. Does he give us broken arms? You see, the way it works is that certainly, yes, God is sovereign over all things, but an arm is good and strong and it builds things. But sin, it breaks things. It twists things. So it's not really a thing as much as it is a twisting, an absence of something that is good. Now, at this point, some of you go, I'm not certain I get it. Well, be clear. If you fully understand the Trinity and the beginnings of sin this morning, then you're probably a heretic, perhaps, because I don't fully grasp that either. And we don't fully grasp it. We've got to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And you have to believe his word. 
And there's certain things that he doesn't fully explain because we can't understand them. I don't even think we'll fully understand the Trinity in heaven. I don't think there's a time. I think we just perhaps praise the Lord. He's got this figured out. I can't prove that. We don't know one way or the other, but it is interesting. I think we'll always be asking questions in heaven and God in his kindness will answer many. Verse one, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Stop right there before we go on to verse five. The point of it is in number five, the son of God is the source of all life and light. Psalm 36, nine, with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. You're gonna see these major themes of light and life and light versus darkness will come all throughout the book of John. And you need to just kind of be ready for those. But we, need, we know that God's presence dispels the darkness of ignorance and sin and provides revelation and salvation. Isaiah 9.2, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, meaning the Son of God. Now the question, if you're starting to get bogged down in these terminologies, how was the Son of God's life the light of men? How did that happen? I really think a noted scholar, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, really is the, does the best job I have read about explaining this. He will talk that, you know, God showed himself through symbols in the Old Testament, the articles in the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial lamb, the bronze serpent that people could look upon and be healed and saved, manna in the desert that people could have bread of life, the rock that Moses struck and it gave forth water. And yet Dr. Johnson goes further and he says, I think what Jesus is doing or what the scriptures are saying or suggesting is that the Lord Jesus Christ was actually engaged in enlightenment, giving light before he actually came here in the flesh. In what way? Well, when Adam and Eve were in the garden of Eden, it was the custom of the Lord God to come down into that garden and have fellowship with them. What member of the Godhead came to fellowship with them? Not the Holy Spirit. He's a spirit. Not the Father. He too is a spirit. Furthermore, it is said that with reference to the Father that no man has seen him nor can see him. What we have in the Garden of Eden when God fellowship with Adam and Eve, perhaps, is one of the theophanies of the Lord Jesus Christ, the appearing before he actually came to the earth, born of Mary. Um, one of these appearances of our Lord, uh, yeah, is before the incarnation. Why did such things take place? Well, they took place in order to prepare the nation for the fact of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And so we have the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to Abraham. We have him appearing to Jacob when he wrestled with him at Jabbok. We have the Lord appearing to Moses. We have the Lord appearing to Daniel. We have the Lord appearing to Gideon. We have the Lord appearing to Samson's parents. We have many theophanies in the Old Testament, which were anticipations of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to Bethlehem. So we have pictures of that all throughout. And finally, verse five, the light shines in the darkness. Uh, he shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You will note the author has been using past tenses and now he's going to use present tense. He's showing us that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, presently, as in the first century, so now in the 21st century, he is presently the light of the world. 
I think you missed that. He is presently the light of the world. There you go. Thank you. That's important to note. He never stops shining. Uh, Light represents both revelation and salvation. Darkness is representing in John ignorance and sin. He's the light of the world. He never left without himself without a witness in the world. Through creation, through conscience, the pro- providence. He even sent messengers to show people that there is a God and you are not him. And he gave people a conscience in Romans 2.15. A warning system, although terribly faulty, people know right from wrong. Not perfectly, but they know it. They're afflicted in their conscience about this. And God gave him this. And by the way, those... Uh, God's creation and God's conscience is not enough to save, but it is enough to condemn. And it takes actually special grace in the person of Jesus Christ in opening up our hearts for us to actually be saved. Last thing, he says this, and the darkness has not overcome it. Overcome is probably a pretty good translation, but it actually means in the Greek, darkness has not grasped it. To grasp something, it it could mean to grasp by force, meaning darkness could not defeat Jesus Christ, could he? Uh, In Acts 4.28, Peter says, you know what you did when you crucified him? You're guilty of what you did, but actually you just fulfilled God's purpose and plan for his son, and he would raise him from the dead. So you can't grasp him by force. And secondly, you can't, darkness cannot grasp the light by its mind. It can't comprehend him. In John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You're not going to come to the light. Darkness doesn't want the light. It hates the light. Like roaches hate the light. Like we hated the light before the Lord saved us. So what do you do with this eternal Jesus, the Son of God, distinct from God the Father, but one with him? Very God, creator of all things, the source of all life and light. Is there any reason not to trust him today? You're going to report to him one day anyway. Is there any reason not to bow the knee? Well, in just a few moments, we're going to see a few folks that actually have bowed the knee. And the Lord in his grace said, you come with me. And they repented and believed and trusted in Christ. Can I show them to you? I will. But for the rest of us, are you where you need to be? Are you truly walking with Jesus Christ, even though you say you're a believer? And if you have not yet come to Jesus as the great shepherd, come to him today. Today might be your home going. And you want to make sure that you're appearing not just before your judge, but before your friend. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We praise you for your kindness towards us. And we pray that you would just grant us Uh, Anybody in here that's not yet trusted in your son, would you grant them eternal life? Would you help them to believe, Lord? They can't without you doing your work. And for all those here that are in Christ, would you please grant us that we would seek first your kingdom, that we would seek to live for the son because there is where we find life abundant. In your son's name we pray it, amen.